0: Alright, welcome to the Social Worlds Podcast. My name is Jack. Episode 1. First off, I'd like to say who I am for the small percentage of you that may not be friends or family. I'm an incoming senior at Adobe madison I'm a psych and history major. I'm primarily interested in social moral psychology as well as the psychology of religion. Specifically, I'm interested in the socialization of values and how that shapes individuals' worldviews. Also, I'm interested in looking at ancient representations of religion religion and religious ideas and seeing how that can be categorized and how that can be understood in modern psychology. It's enough for me. As this episode is episode one, it'll be a little rough. Um, I apologize for the audio for this first recording. It's a little bit quiet, but hopefully we can get this figured out within the next couple episodes. I also apologize for any idiosyncrasies that I have. That could be annoying. Hopefully, it will get away. I'll get away from those as I try to consciously avoid using them as much. That being said, I thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this first episode. This first episode was with Kristen Schutz. Kristen Schutz is a psychology professor at UW-Madison. She got her PhD in developmental psychology at Harvard University. She also was a lab director at the Social Kids Lab at UW-Madison. Her primary research areas are developmental, social, and personality psychology and her interests include the development of social categories and intergroup bias in infants and early children. In this conversation, we talk about some of the research she has done, what we know about kids and biases, the interplay between psycho- psychological problems and cultural problems, and much more. I'd like to thank Kristen for being my first guest and uh, braving through this experience. So now I give you Kristen Schutz. All right. I'm here with Kristen. Welcome to the first episode. This is gonna be a little rough, but I appreciate <laughs> okay. it. This is the test. We'll see how it works. Um, I'm gonna start every episode with kind of the same questions. Uh, my first question is like, do you have a favorite study or um, maybe a most influential study or psychologist for you in your career or just personally, like something you really like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if we think about things that are directly related to the work we do in the lab, probably and probably many people would say this, would be the um, Clark and Clark doll studies that were conducted um, in the uh, 30s and 40s. And mm-hmm. I think that, so those were the studies that basically assessed Um, children's attitudes um, toward people of different races using dolls. So it's Mm, commonly referred to as the doll test, and they took out, you know, a black doll and a white doll, put that in quotes because obviously dolls don't belong to racial groups, but they were meant to um, stand for those and then asked um, children a series of questions about the characteristics of those dolls or which dolls they preferred. Um, and uh, the, the main finding that got um, a lot of attention at that time was that African-American children, when they took that test, you know, um, reported negative qualities about the black doll, said yeah. that they wished they were the white doll, things like that. And I think that while our methods for asking those kinds of questions have changed quite a lot, right. um, and we do things quite differently, I think what's so inspiring about that was that their findings served as, you know, a major piece of evidence in Brown versus Board of Education, yeah. so really right. showing you can ask uh, questions of young children and that those, that asking can be systematic it can be informative mm-hmm. we can respect what children are thinking and feeling and that those things can be taken into consideration when we're making laws about you know our country and we're thinking about what's right and wrong
0: yeah that's so. that's interesting like such an important case in our history yeah. and then the, that at that time you know science is starting to actually influence like the politics and stuff like that that's really interesting um you mentioned lab um. Can you t- first talk about the lab and what what lab is? Yeah. And what? What? How does that relate to uh, what you work on?
1: Yeah. So um, I'm the director of the Social Kids Lab um, at UW Madison, and um, yeah. So we're we try to understand how children come to think about the social world around them, and that has lots of. We study lots of different kinds of things, but a major thing that we're interested in is. They figure out the social categories and groups that are in their environment mm-hmm. and why they come to care about some categories and not others um, and how they grow into adults who care about lots of different right. dimensions when they're thinking of people. So for us, it involves really systematically bringing kids in of particular ages yeah. from particular backgrounds and you know carefully tightly controlled studies in the lab. but they're not that drastically different from the kinds of things that Clark and Clark were doing. And I think Mm -hmm. that research shows how really simple but well-conducted behavioral tests um, can really shed light on really important phenomenon, both if you're thinking about children and issues in society.
0: And so you're interested in how kids are interpreting the world and what kind of cues they're using. How did you get into that? Is Mm -hmm. there something that, like maybe you did you have a younger sibling or how did why did you why are you interested in kids and in their interpretation of the yeah, world
1: it's a good question um i was many majors when i was in college mm-hmm. um but the last major i was was a psychology major um but i thought i wanted to be a clinical psychologist um but i was always interested in the research part and i asked mm-hmm. my um a clinical psychologist on on campus who was i was working in her lab i said oh do you think i can be a clinical psychologist without actually working Mm. with clients (laughs) really scared me. I didn't really like the idea of being in charge of somebody's mental health. Mm. And plus, I loved research and Mm -hmm. that that kind of stuff. And she kind of said, it's kind of hard to imagine going going into a graduate program in clinical psychology and never interacting with any clients or patients. So um, that kind of just got my mind thinking about, okay, if what I'm really interested in is research Mm -hmm. on people and understanding people, maybe the, the clinical is not the right path for me, so I took a a job as a research assistant after graduation just mm-hmm. to learn a little bit more. And um, I wasn't sure I was going to be working with children yeah. in that um, in that job. And in fact, I'd never taken a class in child development huh. as an undergraduate. But um, you know, in part through fate, because some, a lot of people didn't want to work with the okay. infants because they cried a lot, yeah. um, <laughs> they <laughs> slobbered a lot. Um, and I said, well, fine, I'll do that. I'll I'll be the person who works with infants in the lab. I really just became completely fascinated by yeah. all the things that they could do and what they were thinking about the world and how it seemed different from how we used to think about the capacities of very young children. Mm-hmm. So that led me to apply to graduate school in cool. developmental psychology, and then... There, even there, I was mostly studying how infants think about objects. Yeah. So like, how do they figure out like what's a food and what would be a good uh-huh. thing to eat? How do they figure out what's an animal yeah. and how to how to identify what a tiger is versus a snake is? And that was all very cool. Um, but then I just started wondering, in part through interactions with other students in the department, like, wow, if it's really hard for us to figure out how children think about like what a banana is, or how to. F- figure out what a tiger versus a cat versus a snake is like how do children apprehend the social world how do they sort individual people into groups and figure out what those groups are and pick out those properties so um in part it was just kind of like well i've been working on objects and that seems like a hard problem what if i took on this really impossible Mm. problem (laughs) which is how you sort the social world which is culturally variable and Mm. so complex um and I think that will keep me and many other people in the film yeah. busy for the rest
0: of our lives. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing that like, if you haven't, for people that don't, haven't taken like a child psychology class or an infant psychology class is that there's actually many like creative ways to test what kids know, especially babies, like, and gays, like gays following and, you know, um, habituation and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And there's many different ways to get creative about it. And so when I first took a class on that, you know, I was like, how do they even test a kid? Yeah. But you actually can get really creative and find out a lot just from, you know, just how long a kid looks at something or um, how they react to certain things. So it's interesting. Yeah, there's interesting. so much creativity, yeah. I
1: think, especially in child development research, also research with animals, mm-hmm. um, non human yeah. animals, kind of the same idea. You can't, um, although I respect my colleagues, of course, who work with adults and, mm. you know, they come up with very sophisticated studies that have illuminated lots of important things. There is a world in which they can simply ask, adults how they're thinking about something or do you see this or what do you think is unusual here and with infants and with young children just requires a lot of um a lot of creativity to figure out how you're going to get the answer to that and a lot of trips to like arts and crafts stores Mm -hmm. and puppet shows and things like that
0: it's interesting too at some level you're getting like a a more honest response from infants though Mm -hmm. because you're just looking at their intuition or their natural like they're just predisposed gaze follower or whatever's just automatically happening whereas when you might be asking an adult you know they might be hedging because of social desirability or something sure. like that and so it's almost interesting that sometimes you're getting a more honest conversation conversation with um, infants but
1: yeah I think that's true and I don't think um, with some notable exceptions, probably children of scientists or children who go to yeah. schools that have a lab component, and the most children don't really know what an experiment mm-hmm. is, especially an experiment in the social sciences, yeah. and so there isn't that yeah. either. It's not not only is it oh, maybe I don't really care what other people think. I'm just going to respond. How yeah. I'm going to respond? This idea that it would matter what I said in this context to anyone, it probably is, yeah. or that. They would be looking systematically at my response, yeah, comparing me to something else. I mean, I don't think most three-year-olds are going around the world really concerned or worried about that. So I think your intuition that it's a more pure response mm-hmm. is uh, is an interesting
0: one. Um, one last intro question: uh, If you ha- if you have if you could pick any PhD level knowledge and anything other than psych, mm. what would you pick and why?
1: When I read about science in the news, what yeah. I find myself um, most interested in is probably um, behavioral economics, okay. but in the sure. economics in the real world. Yeah. So, I mean, sure, the lab studies where people are trying to understand people's economic behavior, but I think the... Really exciting work being done, um, kind of in large scale, where you either find natural experiment experiments out mm-hmm. there. So, okay, this county for whatever reason had healthcare before this county did, and now we can actually look mm-hmm. at whether that affects people's health seeking, you know, behaviors, um, those kinds of things, or really amazing experiments where you simply ask, wow, what happens if we infuse um, this community or this group of individuals with a cash amount? Does that actually change their lives? I think for me that I kind of, I hope that the work that we do in the lab is socially impactful and important, yeah. but it's a lot easier to see that impact in some yeah. of those large-scale economics experiments. Yeah. and you know, I kind of feel like at the end of the day, the worst thing that could happen in those experiments is that somebody got some money yeah. and did what they wanted to True. do with it, you know, and it seems like there's already a benefit from, experiment, uh, from, uh, from participating. So I just, yeah, I think as a student, I really just didn't care very much uh-huh. about economics. And I sat through those lectures, and now I think most people feel this way, that they wish they could go back to college and actually, yeah. you know,
0: yeah, I'm still have a little scared. Context. I'm still a little scared to go into an economics class, but yeah. maybe I should spend my last year wisely.
1: Well, I think it's you know college is really this amazing time where yeah. especially if you're a full time student mm-hmm. and you have financial resources available to you to be in school. Yeah. It's just this amazing time when you really get to think about things mm-hmm. um, for no other purpose than thinking to and think learning about, about it, right? And there's it's hard to find that in other times <laughs> in yeah. your life. Maybe kind of retirement is for the sure. end of it yeah. where you see senior citizens taking college classes. Just it might be too years. late at that point in time <laughs> with economics. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But you didn't say I had to earn that. No, right? no, no, you said no, I no. got implants. Yeah, yeah. So that's the one. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs>
0: Good answer. I like it. Um so we talked about your interests with um cues and what kids are looking at. Um let's you want to talk about some of those cues that you've sure. found out or that we know in the academia?
1: Yeah. Um in terms of the kinds of things that kids are paying attention mm-hmm. to really. Yeah, so I think you can um so I've often thought about it in terms of uh, social grouping cues that, mm-hmm. you know, very young children think about. So adults, right, we care about lots of different things right. that can classify you as a, I don't know if this would be accurate, but a Packers fan yeah. or a Vikings fan or um, somebody who goes to this university mm-hmm. versus another university yeah. or probably even you live in this dorm or house versus another one, mm-hmm. right? And so Adults are incredibly flexible, and there's some evidence that children are flexible too. Sure. But there's also some evidence that um, some distinctions seem to take priority, at least early in development, mm-hmm. over others. And so, the ones that my colleagues and I have spent the most time looking at are um, gender mm-hmm. um, and also language or the accent with which you speak. Um, there's some reasons that people have posited that those would be really um kind of primary or important cues to young children. some of it stemming from evolutionary theory, mm-hmm. some of it I think you know stemming from just the way the environment maybe is presented to children
0: sure um, um let's yeah. take it to the okay. plains of africa yeah. then okay. um so evolutionary theory is is focusing I you know when we evolved in um in early. Thousands of years ago, of what was important, and so looking at race, gender, and language, um, how does that relate to evolutionary theory mm-hmm. and to what we see in kids now?
1: Yeah. So. I think the story that people tell about gender is that, it, you know, in any society that hopes to exist beyond its current society, yeah. that's going to be a, a relevant feature. Mm-hmm. It has consequences for mating. It has consequences for even if you're an infant, who's going to be able to feed you those kinds of things. And so people have thought that that would be a really, um, you know, really good rationale for um very young children to come into the world, at least prepared to look for a distinction like mm-hmm. that, or prepared to attend to whatever the features were, would be that would help you sort people into those kinds of categories. Um, when it comes to language or accent, I think it's most interesting when you compare it to race, right? Race mm-hmm. is a, a modern phenomenon. We invented it. Mm-hmm. We, we decide, and different countries make different decisions mm-hmm. about who belongs to which groups or how you get into a particular group it's arbitrary Um, and if you um, think about um, evolution you know humans wouldn't have evolved in places where there was long-distance migration such that you were encountering people who looked radically different from you and I think that um, you know Lita Cosmides and um, and her colleagues have made that point really nicely that it's kind of weird that we attend to race if you're an evolutionary psychologist that would that's a weird thing to attend to Um, and so they have a story as to why we do in modern times but that story is not very hard to tell for uh, language or accent so if you think of um, small uh, tribes coming into contact with Mm -hmm. one another either in aggressive ways or for trade you know language groups can be quite close to one another Mm. or signals of accent can be quite close to one another and that might actually be um something that um that would have been important to attend to that would have been kind of an ultimate marker of what group you're in people kind of talked about language as being an honest signal Mm -hmm. too so right, if adults try to learn a language, you try to learn a language mm-hmm. later in life. Um, it's very hard to learn that language without having an accent trace from your sure. native language. And so people have talked about that as being such a really a cue that people attend to because it's such an honest signal too. It's really hard to fake, mm-hmm. so it'd be really reliable in
0: that way. Um, yeah, and that's interesting because linguistics and anthropology can, you know, a- evolutionary theory is pretty hard to support sometimes because yep. you get the criticisms of circular. Yeah. You know it's just you know really upon itself but linguistics and anthropology can actually look into and trace ancient languages Absolutely. and see that there is a lot of variation between small geographical regions exactly. and you can then understand why it would be important to pay attention to language and understand that hey that person's not from here or yep. hey that person has the same language as me maybe i can maybe they're okay yep. and so that's interesting um and that's kind of one of those rare cases where evolutionary theory has some like direct support which
1: Yes, if you talk to other people who aren't psychologists, they have a lot of, you know, they can talk about the context in which um, human evolution would have occurred. I mean, to be fair, I Mm -hmm. think you can still tell a story that doesn't rely on that at all to account for some Mm -hmm. of these things. You know, for the language case, you might say that, well, the auditory environment is really privileged. It's what, you know, Mm -hmm. babies can hear, infants can hear things um, when they're in the womb, Um, you know, Mm. and so maybe that's why it gets so privileged or maybe they hear a ton of their native language and they get so much exposure to that, that that's why it turns out to be such an important cue. You know, I don't know that I necessarily, um, side, you know, come from that side, but I don't think I have good evidence that that's not the case, right? Um for that particular domain that's why i think it's interesting compared to race or any mm-hmm. of the other things Where you can argue okay but you also have a ton of you know experience um in some families let's say if your whole family is from the same um racial or ethnic background of looking at people who look like that for mm-hmm. many many months but it takes a long time for you to show preferences based on race and it's not that long for language so
0: yeah it's um even when like the kids have only been and like, that been only born or, for, or been alive for nine months, you think nature and nurture is going to be pretty hard to split apart. Yeah. And then everything else, just, it, like everything in the world, it just becomes incredibly complex, and the nature-nurture debate still is really hard to se- separate at that point. Um, what other social cues will kids look at? Maybe, like, wealth or, like, resources yeah. or anything like that?
1: Yeah, so um, I kind of mentioned that race is a late-appearing cue, mm-hmm. um, and that kind of made us wonder, well, then – why would you bother to attend to that? You didn't really care about it before. We yeah. know babies can see skin color differences, mm-hmm. so you know that's perceptible to them, but, but it's not until quite late in the preschool years that children start choosing friends based on skin color, or racial group membership. Like, why might that be? And one idea we had was that maybe that's because they're learning something from their culture that's telling them, oh, that thing you just thought was a feature of individuals before or out there in the world is actually a meaningful feature mm. that might connote something else, and so one idea is that maybe that um, racial attitudes stem from kind of um, an awareness of of stereotypes about which groups have more power, which groups have more wealth. Um, so that led us to. Really start a series of studies asking will do young children care about stuff like power Mm -hmm. and wealth in some respects You would think no, why would they care about that. They don't have like 401k If you ask them how much a pencil costs, they say (laughs) things like I don't know a million dollars, you know I mean they they have very poor economic Mm -hmm. intuitions and By virtue of the fact that they're little they don't really have that much power. Mm -hmm. So they're not you know like Trying to be president or you know any of those kinds of things, right, but um, nevertheless it's useful to pay attention to status in your world you can figure out like who's gonna boss you around who might have some good stuff for you and so we've done a series of studies kind of probing whether um, children um, attend to and show preferences for people who are higher in status so probably you know one that um, I think was really interesting was done by my graduate student Libby Bray, who's now a postdoc in Hawaii much better weather than here Um, (laughs) um, where she was interested in, okay, well, if it's the case that you would have to know a lot about economics and about money really to really care about that, are there other kinds of cues that could tell you who is higher in status or who has more power? And so she ended up looking at um, posture cues to power. So we kind of know that people who have more status or power um, they tend to be perceived as such if they have their shoulders back mm-hmm. and kind of their chest high versus if you're kind of you know hunched over mm-hmm. you're kind of um, crouched over and you can think about it my postdoc advisor sometimes said to, you could think about it as like you're exposing your organs like you yeah. are bold or you're kind of protecting them and kind of coming you know closing down so that you're um you're safe and that that can be one way to think about power so what she did was show kids um uh, video clips and photographs of people, one of whom was kind of standing with their chest puffed out and their arms to their side, and the other person was kind of crouched down or um, kind of had a more closed posture, and just asking kids, like, hey, look at these two people. If you had to guess, which of these people do you think is in charge? Um, and children were remarkably good at mm-hmm. picking out just from that postural information who might be in charge. And they also used um, things like the tilt of somebody's head or whether somebody was being engaging in like direct gaze versus averted. So if I'm staring right at mm-hmm. you, that's kind of permission that I have to actually look at you, right? Mm-hmm. Signals so you know that I'm in power and then people who aren't in power tend to kind of alternate their gaze or or defer their gaze away, at least in our culture. Um, And so she found that children were attentive to that as well. And if you pay attention to those things, that not only tells you about relationships among individuals out there, like which guy is in charge of which other guy, um, but it can maybe also tell you, like, wow, which groups might be more in charge, which groups might um, be more respected or have more power in this society.
0: And standing right in front of all this conversation, then, is what... all the coincidences with animals Mm -hmm. and how animals are attuned to gazes and to Mm -hmm. dominant positions. And then obviously then people would want to shape this conversation then straight to evolutionary psychology Mm -hmm. again and then kind of go back to the whole nature and nurture and probably at some level cultures promote and like kids learn, they're learning that this is how parents act when they're, uh, you know, they know and this is how parents act when they don't know. And so Mm -hmm. you have like, maybe it's like a predisposition predisposition to learn about something but then they just kind of I, it's interesting because it's hard to split it apart again and so
1: I think that's true. I think when you look at animals it tells you where don't you need this intricate all these funny things that human societies do in order to apprehend something or have some capacity within you but to be fair humans do all kinds of weird things when it comes to status and power that animals don't do true. right so you think of um uh, there's a paper by um, uh, by Gil White and Joe Henrik and they kind of argue that look if you think of somebody like Stephen Hawking mm-hmm. this is not somebody who is physically dominant who is physically yeah. dominant over other people he's not particularly large he I'm sure himself would admit he's not going to win a lot of physical altercations right but he's incredibly for his incredible status, mm-hmm. he's very highly respected, and those might be kinds of things that human societies do that are maybe unique when it comes to power. And certainly, the way power is marked across human cultures can be really different too. So, um, you know, it would be interesting to ask the extent to which power. I'm not even sure in terms of posture is a culturally that could be culturally mm-hmm. variable. Um, But there are certainly other things that will be culturally variable, like the way you wear your hat or Mm -hmm. the kinds of gestures that you use or those kinds of things. So there's lots of things that humans do to signal power and to perceive power that I think Probably aren't present um, in uh, with a, among other animals, but mm-hmm. I would leave leave that to my colleagues yeah. who do that kind of work to tell me that I'm right or wrong about that. Certainly, animals care about size and postures and yeah. kind of of puffing. I, I think
0: my off. interest in evolutionary bias or evolutionary psychology is coming out right now, so maybe I'll hedge away <laughs> from that. <laughs> um, so we we've been talking about. Uh, social cues and stuff like that and related to this is implicit versus explicit mm-hmm. cue or bias. Yeah. Um, do you want to like maybe elaborate more on the difference between the two and why it's important today?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, historically the if you, people you talk about implicit or explicit measures or things where bias is overtly measured. So in childhood we might simply say like, you know, here's a picture of one kid, here's a picture of another kid which kid do you like more? Mm-hmm. And that's probably, um, at least to an adult and to an older child, pretty obvious what we're asking. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty easy to control your responses to that if you wanted to. So in a, in a case like, we can go back to Clark and Clark again, right, mm-hmm. I have a white doll and a black doll. Mm-hmm. If I'm asking you that question and you're an older child and an adult, you kind of know what's mm-hmm. being asked, yeah. right? And you can also kind of decide in the moment how you want to mm-hmm. answer that question. And people have contrasted that from tests that maybe um, don't have that feature. So often the implicit association test mm. is taken as one measure of, um, of um, that kind of implicit bias where you measure just a, a, the extent to which um, people associate certain groups with different kinds of attributes in a speeded reaction time test. So. Um, that people have argued maybe is harder to control in the moment. Um, maybe it's harder to even really know what you're being asked to do, especially if you're a child, and so it has some features that are different um, developmentally the implicit the implicit and explicit attitudes kind of pattern together early in childhood, so Um, If I ask a four-year-old who they want to be friends with, they might choose a white child over a black child if they themselves are white, and they might also associate more positive attributes with white over black on a so-called implicit association test. if you are talking about older kids then you start to see a difference there where that implicit association test measure starts to look kind of looks the same over development so older kids also show that bias there but older kids now um, are much less likely to pick for example the white over the black child in that more explicit measure and so there's lots of ways to think about that Mm -hmm. one is to think that and i think that people don't often think about this um, but one is to think that older children's attitudes actually have changed Uh and they're telling you that. So there's a view of like, if you wanna know if I'm prejudiced or what my preferences are, ask me about them Mm -hmm. and that's the answer. It's not my score on the implicit association test. I will tell you what my attitudes Mm -hmm. are and you could imagine that older kids, like 10 year olds are telling you what their attitudes are and they're different from what they were when they were six year olds. Another story, though, is that children, you know, recognize that that's not a socially appropriate response to give, um, that um, it's socially sanctioned, and that they start to give different responses because of that. And I personally don't think that um, I've seen compelling evidence, at least in childhood, that we know which one is actually true, and it kind of depends on... What you think is a good measure of bias or mm-hmm. prejudice and what those tests are actually doing, I think that's a pretty big debate in the field right now. and You should talk to Trish Devine about yeah. it. She'll <laughs> have lots of things to say about it, it. She's thought about it pretty deeply.
0: It's also interesting um, and potentially important to discuss this is how can you have an honest conversation about someone's implicit bias Yeah. and how can you change that and acknowledge that there might be some problems in the way you're thinking but it's still something to change how can you have that conversation with people that are not willing to admit that Mm -hmm. and then you know how can you slowly chip away at that and understand that it's part of a lot of people's intuitions and it's Mm -hmm. you know like sure you might explicitly not think something but implicitly you do like it's you know it's embarrassing no one wants to admit that no one wants to say that Mm -hmm. they have that but when they are seeing those when they see those results you know it's pretty shocking but so, I think it's important to understand and to talk about how can you promote like an honest conversation about it and a willingness to accept it and to you know chip away at it and slowly yeah. get rid of that implicit bias
1: yeah, and how you do that at this how you do that at the same time that you encourage people kind of implicit says, "Oh, maybe I can't control, and I have no ownership mm. over it, but then of course, any intervention or engagement you want to have people have the power to control those things through their awareness of them, so I think that's a it's a difficult line to walk in. And, interventions. and
0: there's certainly there's one population in the United States that is willing to accept that and to say, yeah. hey, you know, this is probably something I should work on. But then there's the other population that either don't believe that that's true or maybe not might think that it's a problem and then that's a whole nother. Absolutely. So there's different groups that you have to work with and have different yeah. styles of working with them. And I think that's something that's going to be interesting to see in the future, how um, interventions can work against implicit bias.
1: And I think you have to think about what do I really do, like what is my goal here? Is my goal really to change somebody's score on this test or is my goal really to make people aware and concerned about bias and depending on what your goals are there could lead to different kinds of interventions and I think that, you know, some thinking that people are starting to think much more deeply about what do I want to change here, Mm -hmm. what is the problem and then what's the, how do I get to the solution to that?
0: um so when we think about explicit bias and implicit implicit bias does your explicit information and the things that you hold to be true slowly shape what you implicitly do so if um someone thinks something explicitly does that shape their implicit thought because of the patternized repeated you know Mm -hmm daily things or is there something quantitatively different or qualitatively different between implicit and explicit bias?
1: I think, well, first of all, there's a correlation usually between explicit and implicit bias, which is there's some connection between Mm -hmm. them. And I, and some interventions that seek to work on implicit bias actually say that it's the recognizing that kind of explicit attribution that you're making. So you recognize that, oh, I just saw um, this driver and they and they were driving recklessly and I noticed it was a woman mm. and yeah women are bad drivers so stop and say wait a second I'm not going to practice that response I need to unlearn that habitual response and so I think that's where you start to think about connections between that explicit system and that implicit system it's basically that aware it's like no you're going to go and you're going to be aware that you're making that link and you're going to seek to replace it with a um, a different stereotype, um, or there's a number of different kinds of strategies that one might use, but it's really effortful, that's mm-hmm. hard, I mean that's a, it's worth doing in my opinion, but it is a hard, you know, think of all the things people and challenges people have as they navigate their day, that's mm-hmm. a hard thing. So one thing we've started thinking a lot about is whether um, the best way to break the you know, Trish Devine would call that kind of a habit, Mm -hmm. Um, so her intervention, she often frames in breaking the habit, would be what if you didn't really form that habit in the first place, and what if you didn't, you know, in childhood um, really have that practiced association between those things, like, then maybe we don't wanna wait until people are 18 years of age, and they've practiced this so many times, Mm -hmm. and that burden to, you know, on them to try to undo that is a really difficult one. What if we capture children Much people at much younger ages Mm -hmm. before it was so practiced and gave them another path or gave them a way to engage with the information
0: they're receiving Yeah, and I you know one would like to think that we're at some sort of Tipping point right now or some sort of crossroads Mm -hmm. where the explicit is pretty much being hopefully phased out Mm -hmm. But the implicit still there and you know hopefully that because the explicit is not there as direct Maybe the implicit is less and so kind of relating back to that relationship yeah, inter- I mean, I
1: think it's, it's interesting thing think we have different groups and different demographics mm-hmm. in the U.S., right, and the what the politi- target yeah. groups are. I mean, if you think of the climate now, I often I often accidentally slip in such language myself, but I often think, well, it's not much true that every nobody wants to be prejudiced. Mm-hmm. It's not really true that people don't say certain things to their kids. It's a certain maybe certain people with certain values or backgrounds don't say those things or they don't say them about particular groups. But it certainly wouldn't be that there's a number of people in this country who vote for policies and mm-hmm. who are willing to say things that certainly suggest that they don't, that they really believe those things, mm-hmm. that they hold those, that their values are different from maybe people, yeah. other people's values. Mm-hmm. So I always try to be I think there's reasons for optimism, but reasons yeah, for pessimism too. So it kind of depends on where you direct your attention. So
0: yeah, there's two problems here which we talked about now. is And yeah. the political problem, you know, sure. Once we figure out, how we can hopefully reduce implicit mm-hmm. and actually phase out explicit bias. Then it was how do we? How is this effective? And does this actually like have any potential, yeah. especially in the populations that we would want to change the most, mm-hmm. the populations that have the biggest problem or the what we consider to be the um, the biggest quote-unquote threat or, you know, to individuals, like other individuals that they might be affecting.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think um, if you take somebody who is really interested, you know, in Mm. addressing these biases in themselves, can see a benefit to their company, a benefit to themselves, maybe they would feel less bad if they didn't have these thoughts, maybe they would hire better people and their company would do better, whatever the reasons are, that's going to be... A different kind of population to work with than a group of people who are like, no, I, I think that, and I don't, I'm not troubled by that at all, and I think that's the way it should be. Yeah,
0: Um. how do you, it's like, you know, if a kid wants to learn math, the kid's gonna do pretty well in math, and they have a natural motivation to learn it, and they find it exciting, but how do you teach math to someone that doesn't want, doesn't care about it at all, yeah. and doesn't think it's, doesn't think it has any value to them?
1: So intrinsically you, you, or extrinsically. Yeah, it's, how do you make it, I mean it's a motivation question which Judy Herakiewicz studies in this question how do you make something you know, um, really something that somebody would care about working on mm. and that might mean you know, some people believe that's making it clear to people that it is something that can be changed you can work on okay. that and that could be part of it others is finding some reason that the person should personally value that yeah. like why should i care about that make a case to me for how this is you know negatively Im- impacting me or how um how this could be important to me or why is this an interesting problem yeah. what's what's interesting about this problem and why should i want to work on it so yeah i think that those those motivational questions are another whole set of really yeah. really challenging issues. And
0: so we talked about you know implicit and explicit racial biases yeah. and like now like coming back back to yeah. your research like working with kids and stuff like that, um, if like how does what you know how would that influence like, how you would interact with kids or how you would mm-hmm. raise with kids like what would you do differently and what mm-hmm. and you know race is obviously a weird topic to talk about mm-hmm. with kids but I think it's an important topic yeah. to talk about and it's one that's not really being talked about. Mm-hmm. So how do you talk about it? in a way that shows that there's problems or there's something, you know, like there's something that's important to be talked about, but not without stressing the difference too much. Because if you keep talking about, oh, you know, black versus white, potentially that might be just stressing the difference even more. And then culture shapes the kid's mind to say, mommy always talks about, you know, black and white and culture, you know, those shaping the kids to think that that's like an important difference. So how do you talk about race and how do you kind of work, work and send them on a good, uh, foot forward.
1: Yeah, I'm having to talk about some of my intuitions about that. I think that there are a lot of suggestions out there and I guess one interesting point is I think the science is really lagging behind mm-hmm. on that. So, I think a lot of work in the future would really try to address, okay, you have this idea. Have you ever tested it? Mm-hmm. Have you ever had parents try that strategy? For whom is that an effective strategy? Are parents able to do that? I mean, one challenge. So, people used to think, oh, I think and I think many people still think today I I don't want my children to be biased, I want them to be fair, people who treat everyone with kindness, and I don't, so the last thing I should do is actually emphasize difference. So if I talk about it, you know, that's a bad thing. And I don't think that intuition is, is totally hard, is very hard to understand, because there is in fact a lot of evidence in psychology. That when you label something, Mm -hmm. that invites children and adults alike to think, oh, that's a meaningful distinction. There must Mm -hmm. be something in common. If, you know, we can think about it in the object case, if I call this a blicket, and I say, this is another Mm -hmm. blicket, and I ask you, you know, how similar they are, the fact that I've labeled them with the same label makes you think that they're similar, Mm -hmm. and, and... the fact that I've used a label makes you think that there's something there at all to be talked about rather than blobs. Yeah, the, so I don't think that's a crazy intuition. The,
0: the, yeah, the tool of labeling can quickly yeah, become a, a weapon.
1: Exactly. So, but on the other hand, we know from from years of research that given that most, especially white parents, do not talk to their white children about race... Well, that doesn't seem to result in those children coming into our lab and showing no bias on racial attitudes measures. So we do have a data point there that not saying anything Mm -hmm. and letting the world wash over them and letting kids' clever minds able to perceive you know, issues in our society and differences in our society and how people actually feel about some of these things. I mean, children are really good at learning Mm. from other people, so if you're not going to tell them, they also pick up on aspects of their environment, Mm. right, using, so I talked about its ability to pick up on just somebody's posture Mm -hmm. and interacting with somebody else. Well you could never say anything about race, but if you always look scared when you're talking to a member of a certain group, or if you never associate with people from a particular group, that is information to the child, right? It's not a lap that you're providing information about who who should come to our home, who's a good person, who's scary. There's So just not saying anything is not you're not presenting no information there that's information too
0: yeah the the statistical machines that our brains are, yeah, are pretty dangerous so absolutely. maybe it's important to set some some sort of uh Roadblock in the way that could lead down the wrong road or something yeah, like that. So I think
1: at the other hand, you have to. At the other hand, you have to, as I was saying, take kids really seriously. Mm-hmm. They're really learners. They're curious about the world. They're curious about what you think about the world, and so talking about those issues makes a ton of sense. Um, I don't think it's going to be as simple as like, oh, you read them this book and like, phew, yeah. done. You know, you walk away and you don't address um, difficult. You topics got the hard again. thing and don't
0: it. Do. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and so those are. And I think they're hard conversations for adults to have with one another. So then how you have that conversation with your seven-year-old. Yeah. I mean, I think we tell parents, be now we tell parents, be sure to talk about race with your kids. Mm-hmm. Make your values known. But I'm not sure adults are very good at talking to other adults yeah. about what their values are, what, what race is, or how it's, they should think and about here it. Here we back
0: our at the, we have the psychological issue, but then we're back to the cultural issue. Totally.
1: And so. Yeah. So I don't. I guess that's a crummy answer to your question. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's good to say nothing, yeah. because kids are really good learners, and they will learn how our society is structured and what other adults around them think and care about. Um, but I think what you said, just telling parents say something, is not very useful. And so
0: I, I think that's just this just highlights the tightrope that is to be walked and. Totally. What the interactions between culture and psychology, and how th- all this is just something that is incredibly important and yet incredibly hard to figure out.
1: Yeah, and and, and also the ways that over the years uh, evidence has shed light on some of the answers mm-hmm. to yeah. these things. I think it's easy to think, like, oh my gosh, we yeah. don't know the answer to lots of you know to all these questions. We don't know anything, but in fact, we're building mm-hmm. you know a basis of knowledge, and it's fair it's slow and. Sometimes we we go off on the wrong path and that path has to be corrected and it's very you it know just takes a long time. We're complex creatures and we're trying to understand ourselves mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's hard. And so, I think we know a lot about ourselves and about how the um, how the you know how our minds work. But there's a tremendous amount to be learned. And again, a case for optimism or pessimism. Yeah. Like oh look at how we've learned and how these amazing tools that we have and that we're developing. Or you can say. Wow, there's a lot of hard questions out there, and mm-hmm. we really don't know the answers to them. And it I don't know it kind of depends on where you fall.
0: Is there anything else that sort of keeps you up at night, or like a social or psychological issue that like really ignites your motivation to keep researching? Is there anything yeah, that comes I, to mind quickly?
1: I think one thing I've been thinking a lot about lately, just really local to our research, is just whether I'm right about the claim I made about mm. how it would be useful to to um, intervene earlier to work with young children versus waiting until later because there's a lot of things that are difficult about working with young children, too, maybe they don't care so much about what other people think and they have more limited memory um, and inhibitory control skills and there's lots of... so. I guess I, question, I love the answer that we should work with children, mm-hmm. and like that's the best way if we want to address some of these biases. But I, I do stay up and wonder at night if I'm right about that. Um, and obviously the best way to, to answer that would actually yeah. be to study it. But I think, so I've been thinking about ways that you would even be able to do that kind of research, either longitudinally or different ages. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, hang my hat on that idea for now mm-hmm. but I think it it's in the back of my mind it bothers me don't yeah, know if that's true and if it's not yeah. true then I probably should move my work up in age mm-hmm. and you know
0: it's an interesting uh, philosophical moral yeah. psychological <laughs> <It's> question <like laughs> that is probably just as complex as the rest um, but I thank you for your time I think that was a really interesting conversation and the interactions between culture and psychology and then also throwing kids in the mix too as they are they are the future so Thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks.